The Icebox, The Phonograph, The Ford Model A, Polio, and Prohibition. What do all of these have in common? They were all from a time at least over 90 years ago. History has always been fascinating for me. It's the only subject when I was in elementary school that would really catch my eye. I liked it so much, I actually used to read the textbooks in class every year. But whether it interests you or not, history makes us better decision makers. It gives us the opportunity to learn from past mistakes. It helps us understand the many reasons why people may behave the way they do. And it connects us with the past so we can build a better future. Conversations and storytelling were how our ancestors tens of thousands of years ago passed down history. And I believe we often miss out on incredible inspiring stories from older generations that have the potential to help us grow and move forward. This episode of Spill the Matcha marks the beginning of a new segment, the Senior Edition. Episodes revolving around this segment will feature a variety of different hosts, interviewing seniors from past generations with inspiring and intriguing stories, while we're lucky enough for them to still be alive for us to hear them. One of the ways I was able to achieve my own goals and dreams as of yet was through the conversations I had as a kid with my grandfather. So I'm proud and honored to start the first senior edition with William Woods, my 91-year-old grandfather. On this episode of Spill the Matcha, Senior Edition, we chat about what it was like to be a successful African-American business owner in the 1960s, a pioneer and an activist who participated in the March on Washington and so much more. It's no surprise that millions of Americans trust AAA for more than just roadside assistance. With 24-hour access, on-the-spot AAA battery installation, and complete insurance coverage, we're right there with you every step of the way. Join AAA today. You ever think about trading stocks? I mean, you always could, but usually it was up to 10 bucks a trade. That adds up fast. With Robinhood, you can buy now, with no trading fees, ever. You'll get real-time market data, when you need to know, what you need to know, and how to make an informed decision. This includes notifications when important stuff happens, like a rise or drop in the market. Look at you, the power of the stock market in the palm of your hand. And you'll notice the details, the trends even the slight shift in the wind. So sign up today at share.robinhood.com slash RonaldT65 and trade commission-free. I'm RJ Tolson. Welcome to the Spill the Matcha podcast, a Capritor Studios original series. I believe we often feel inspired to reach our goals and become our best self the way we always have, through learning from a collective of experiences shared by fellow people. I will ask guests from wellness experts, thought leaders, best-selling authors, and career coaches to experience luminaries, to spill the matcha, to lay out bare their truths, advice and opinions in an effort to bring to light informative knowledge on a variety of different topics 
meant to help you further along the journey to achieving what you want in life. Knowledge is power, and together we are stronger. Your journey continues now, with us along for the ride. This episode's guest is very special for two reasons. One, it's one of our last episodes as we leave 2019 and head into the new decade, 2020. And two, the guest is my grandfather, a 91-year-old successful businessman and retired physical therapist who worked in the past with the NAACP, created one of the first rehabilitation centers for physical therapy in the 1950s during Jim Crow, and before going off to run his own multi-office physical therapy practice starting in the 60s for over 40 years. Welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> you sound excited. I am. <laughs> okay, so for listeners who are wondering who you are, give us some information on your 91-year background. I'm excited because uh, many of the people my age certainly don't have the pleasure of their grandson interviewing them. <laughs> that's, that's true. I mean, most of them honestly don't live this long, right. for one. So tell us, what, tell us a little bit about your background. I'm born in Martinsburg, West Virginia, 1928, a small town in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia between Virginia and Maryland, a very borderline state as reference to uh, race relations. Attended Howard University, graduated from Springfield College in Springfield, Massachusetts as a physical education major, went to the University of Pennsylvania School of Physical Therapy following graduation at Springfield and having done six months of rehabilitation in a course, graduate course at Springfield before going to the University of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> Graduated from the University of Pennsylvania after a 12-month uh, course in physical therapy, uh, went on a polio epidemic uh, as my first job at Herman Kiefer Hospital in Detroit, Michigan for three months and then was drafted into the service, U.S. Army Medical Corps, spending two years in the Medical Corps as a physical therapist, uh, 19 months at, ni at uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey, and prior to that, five months at uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the base of the 52nd Airborne Hospital. That was, that was during Korea, right? I was during the Korean War. Mm -hmm. Got discharged from the Army uh, in 1955 and worked in Philadelphia at the Visiting Nurses Association on a home care program. Uh, left there after 22 months and was hired as the director of a new rehabilitation center, home-oriented program for care of anyone who had disabilities created by a legacy from a carnival trampoline group who were originally from Springfield, Massachusetts, I'm sorry, from Meriden, Connecticut, who uh, left money for this type of program. I was hired as the director of physical therapy and the originator of the program. I grew that program to include physical therapy, social service, 
occupational therapy and physical medicine. After six years, I left that program. It was doing extremely well, but I finally decided to open a private practice in Meriden, Connecticut. So after what? That was that was forty years ago. No, that was that was over fifty, fifty five, sixty years ago. Fifty seven, sixty three was when I went into private practice. Sixty three. That was thirty seven years. Thirty seven plus nineteen, fifty six years ago. Yeah, that's a long time ago. It's it is twice as long as I've been alive. More than almost. More than that. You also, I mean, you you not only did you have your um, on practice, but you had multiple offices in throughout Connecticut. You had yes, I had an office in uh, Meriden, Connecticut, one in Wallingford, Connecticut, and one in Cheshire, Con uh, in Southington, Connecticut. And we contracted to uh, busy nurses association in Meriden, Wallingford, Cheshire, and Southington for home care programs. And considering the fact that that started in the 1960s, which was just during what? During Martin Luther King, during the race riot, a lot of riots. <clears throat> during the uh, Jim Crow era. Well, during the Jim Crow era, but during the uh, revolution of the civil rights movement. Yeah, which you guys, which you and my grandmother were. We were very much involved in the local NAACP. We attended the march in Washington, the Martin Luther King uh, famous speech at the Washington March on Washington. And uh, that was a very uh, historical moment, and I shall never forget it. It was uh, very dramatic, very impressive. All kinds of people, color, race, creed, ethnic backgrounds, gathered in Washington to uh, demonstrate against uh, racism and create civil rights for all Americans. So speaking of, of Martin Luther King and, and the 1960s and basically all of that, uh, I thought one of the discussions we could have, considering the fact that you're 91 years old, um, which means you were born in the 1920s, so you're part of the silent generation, as they're called, as you guys are called, uh, grew up in the 30s and 40s and have watched the icebox become the refrigerator, as well as so many more uh, incredible things from, I mean, TV, cell phones, etc., um, what are things in 2019 going into 2020 that you would have never imagined seeing in your day? Probably uh, the, one of the most impressive things would be uh, the travel system, subway systems that work as they do, and the air airplanes that uh, go all everywhere and from all kinds of cities and going around the world well you had but you had you had subways they right? had subways but uh, not they didn't run like they do now yeah nor do they did they have the used to have electric cars mm -hmm. electric public transportation like in when I used to go to Pittsburgh or, uh, or Washington DC you'd see these electric powered buses and uh, and then in New York, the subway system, it, it was there for a long time, but it's certainly been improved. Um, there are many in medicine, the changes, even in, in the own profession of physical therapy, the, the treatment methods, the 
various approaches to treatment uh, in medicine in general. Well, you were there at the height of the polio epidemic. You were born well, during the height <clears> of it. I was working in the, during the time of the uh, polio epidemic when I first graduated from uh, physical therapy school at Penn. I went on a polio epidemic in Detroit and experienced the harrowing effects of polio, but also being able to help many people I remember the engineers from various General Motors, Ford company, if adults, young adults, children, infants affected by polio, the iron lungs that they had at the time, a very dramatic uh, and heart-rendering uh, experience. Well, I remember the, the, we used to drive by on our way to either Mohegan Sun or to one of my, my uh, previous schools but there was a um, a, poly, a place they used to have a polio rehabilitation center. Um, it was, I think that's what it was. But it was more so in the time period, I guess, it was where you put people who had polio rather than a rehabilitation center. Remember the... Yeah, Gaylord, Gaylord Hospital. No, it, there was one... Um, that's in Wallingford. Yes. No, there's, there was, there's one on the way to, like, wherever past Mohegan or on the way, and it's an asylum. It looks like an asylum. You remember that? Oh, that's the one up near Yukon. Yeah, and yeah. My, my point is with that is that there's an asylum, and then there's, back then, there were all of these places that were open to treating the millions of people that had polio, and then basically once polio was cured, those places became asylums. And we used to, we, we, well, we, we passed see, this place in Mansfield, that's what That's what, yes, that's Mansfield, what it was. Mansfield, Connecticut. Which they use a lot, they use those kinds of asylums in, in horror films, they use a lot. Um, but it shows you the the... Um, rampid, you know, rampage uh, effects of polio over what the last those I guess forty years or how how long was polio really? A... Polio was this was nineteen fifty three fifty five. Uh, over the next fifteen twenty years, polio was still pretty prevalent. And it was before that, in at least forty years, it was, right? Well, it was before that, with the before the Salk vaccine was discovered. Mm that uh, help prevent and cure the disease. Yeah, but mo a lot of people didn't recover from it until once, you know, once the vaccine came out, correct? Well, the, the vaccine was a preventive measure. Mm -hmm. The treatment uh, was iron lung or various methodologies of physical therapy that was used to uh, help rehabilitate people who had been affected by uh, polio. I mean, the fact that, well, that's, that's, so we've talked about um, from physical therapy and medicine to uh, transportation, so from airplanes and uh, subway systems, which I don't think you've ever been on the Los Angeles subway system, but you've been, have you been on the D uh, DC subway system, Washington, DC? Yes. So the Washington, DC subway system, I think the current system has been there since like maybe the 1990s, 2000s. Yes, that's, that's. What I meant when I was talking about the difference in the quality of and the advancements where Washington's system evolved much later than New York's. Yes. So it was much more refined. No, definitely. It was much, I mean, it's much nicer, honestly. Right. At least from my perspective, right. you got, you had air conditioning, heating built in, you know, right. that, nicer that's, stuff. Yeah. It was much smoother, much, much more rapid, but... Uh, that's part of the evolution of, you know, improvements in technology, 
in technology. But you went, you also went, I, you know, I joked earlier about the ice box, which a lot of people may not know what that is, you know, from the literal term, you may be able to guess, but you, if you want to explain what the ice box was. Yeah, <clears throat> excuse me, the ice box was a refrigerator type without the ice being made within the machine. The ice was brought in externally in frozen large ice cubes, but they were maybe four feet, four to six feet long and three to four feet wide. Mm -hmm. And they were put into your, in my uh, grocery store that my mother ran, there was a large section above at the top that was made for these six or eight or 10 of those tops of ice cubes, which were big hundred pound pieces of, of frozen uh, water into ice and put in the top of that and stored there. And that's why they call it an ice box. And that entire industry was basically gone once the refrigerator yes, system was created. that in industry. Which was probably what, the first 20 years of your life? Was it? Oh no, that was, was later. Longer? That was later, probably the late thirties. So, oh, late thirties. So yeah, you were, yeah, you were almost, you were about 20, you know, you weren't even 20 then yet. No, I was about 28, about 12 to 15 years old when that. Because the ice box was delivered by the ice man or ice woman, man, correct? Yes, was yes. it, could it have been a woman at the time? No, a woman couldn't woman. have done that. What, what they, oh, you mean the physical, I mean, you, you, the physical, they weighed about 15, 75 to 100 pounds, what they put in my store. Now, people in their homes could buy 25 cents or, you know, a piece of ice, which would be three foot, maybe two feet wide and mm -hmm. uh, one foot uh, the other way. But, and that put it in your own ice box at home, mm -hmm. you know. And it had a dripping, it would melt, so you had to have a pan under the bottom of the refrigerator ice box to collect the the uh the water the water as it, it uh, evaporated i think that to me is even more because i've seen plans you know from the 70s from the 50s from the 60s and yeah they've evolved and i'm sure they've become smoother or you know certain features like that but when you think of from the ice box to the refrigerator which is just a complete jump that's like from you know not to be so frank but i think it's from you know almost like fire torch to you know light like the jump from ice literally to here's this thing that just basically does it for you you don't have to do anything for it except electricity i think it's a huge jump and then you also you, you know you watch football a lot and you have color tv you have tv you mentioned this earlier to me too i'm assuming that jump from radio because you also grew up with radio yes right you didn't definitely. you weren't born with, with tv Oh, no, I was, you know, we had radio. We used to sit by the radio and listen to the football games, the mm -hmm. Redskins in Washington and Sammy Ball and all those great players when the Redskins played the Chicago Bears and the New York Giants. And uh, Then the television came and you could sit and watch the picture. But know? television didn't come until like, what, the, f oh, it came in the 50s? 50s, right. Uh, okay, so you were still young. Did your mother buy a, tele a TV? Oh, yes. Oh, okay. They so had a small 13-inch, first one, I think it was. That's smaller than my laptop. Right. That's crazy. But you, when you when you uh, listen to radio, did you ever listen to, you know, one of the things that are famous are 
radio shows, not like normal just shows on the radio, but specifically the ones where they had actors. Ed Sullivan show was the most popular show. Of the that's a talk the show, right? Show, the talent, talent show. But that's not one of the like acted out kind of theatrical shows. No, Do you ever no, listen to those? There was a theater. There was a, a, the, uh, a theater program. Shakespeare. Um, I can't bring Shakespeare up. in the park. Huh? Was it Shakespeare in the park? No, it was. I I just can't bring up the name of it, but it was a theater uh, production. Uh, I just it escapes me now. Well, you so you did listen to one or, one or two of those. Oh yeah. Kind of, yes. Okay. Oh yeah. Because whenever I watch a, a lot of the the horror or um, uh, thriller type films, I like to watch. They take place in the nineteen twenties, thirties, forties, and oftentimes what they'll do to use as a cinematic uh, tool is they use the radio and you know you'll be sitting there in the radio and it'll show the time by having a radio show on where they're like acting and you know whatever it is during that time period but um, I mean other than what transit uh, transportation uh, TV theater uh, electronics as far as uh, utensils electronic uh, mixers in your home, the oven, the uh, microwave ovens. Mm -hmm. I mean, who would have thought that we could have microwave, put something in there and be in a minute be done or that we could heat something so quickly. When did that come? Do you remember? Oh, probably 20 years ago. Really? No. There's... Microwaves? Yeah. They were around. I think microwaves are around longer than that. Well, you think they were, you don't remember them being there in the 70s? We didn't. We built this house fifty years ago, uh -huh. but we didn't have a microwave for at least twenty-five, at least thirty years. Really? I think not. What about the um, microwavable dinner? Those dinner meals. Those used to be, or those oven meals. Yeah, those are. Oh, they're oven meals. Oh, okay, I thought. Microwave. Well, they had. Things you could put in a microwave oven, but the question is, how long ago was that? I don't. I don't think it was. I finished college in '51. It didn't, certainly didn't have it then. Mm. Well, I mean, in retrospect, I mean, uh, there are a lot of things that have happened, you know, electronically. That uh, you know, it's more within the past thirty years, probably. You mean a huge jump? A huge jump. But I think yes. one, of, one of the things you used to talk to me about with my great-grandmother, your mother, was that one of the things that was negative and positive, positive for us to a certain degree, negative for her, was grocery stores and chains. Right. Because back then there weren't, basically there weren't chain, many chains. And there was a time period where basically the chain system, the idea of the chain system must have caught on with corporate and they took over, correct? That's right. My mother ran a grocery store, and uh, when I went to college in '45, first year I went to college, she had the grocery store. Uh, shortly thereafter, uh, supermarkets began to evolve, and they put her out of business, basically. Over well, the idea of a supermarket versus a market, right? A market is market at the time. I'm assuming was a person would own the store, like. 
She had a neighborhood grocery store, yes. And then basically supermarkets would come in with a lot more money and be able to offer a lot more than someone who would be able to do it on their own. Correct. And that's what put them out. And they were probably in maybe a more convenient place because they came afterwards. Um, One of the reasons why I know that, you know, why you see Starbucks next to a Dunkin' Donuts is because usually the Dunkin' Donuts or the Starbucks, whoever's there first, brings traffic in. And if you go right next to them, you get to start taking traffic from that other business. So a lot of people all the time are like, oh, I wonder why Starbucks is right next to Dunkin' Donuts. I mean, that's 100% why. If this huge market is right down the street or right next to this smaller grocery store that everyone's been going to for 40 years, eventually people are going to start migrating over to the other market. It's just a matter of that. That's what happened. Well, I think more than that, uh, they because of the supermarkets, A&P, for example, which you don't see much now, but A&P was a big store at that time. Mm-hmm. And they were cheaper and they had everything in that store. Whereas the local grocery neighborhood market didn't have everything. Mm-hmm. So people, it was a convenience, but also the prices were cheaper. So that that made the uh, going to neighborhood that store, market yeah. much more difficult to operate. Well, she, and she also, you said she ran a, um, she also ran, she ran a store, but then she also ran a restaurant for a short period too, she right? Did. She had a small restaurant where she used to f- serve food. And that was during the war when there were a lot of people employed, making good money and in the neighborhood uh, she had a grocery. The war, you mean World War Two? World War Two, yeah. That's crazy. So, but she she had that store for a couple of years? Oh, she had, that was my grandfather's store. Oh, okay. No, not the store, the gro- sorry, the, gro- uh, the restaurant. Oh, yeah, she had that for a few years, like five, probably, probably eight years, 10 years, maybe. I can't even, you know, every time I say this, I can't imagine have, having been her in that situation in that time period. I mean, that was like, what, 1930s, 1940s. That right. was, you know, lynch mob mentality in the South. That was uh, Jim Crow, height of Jim Crow era. Uh, it's just crazy to think that she was running, you know, by herself. She was running a store. Well, and she wasn't by herself. Well, I meant she was the orchestrator behind right, it right. with the restaurant and uh, the grocery store. And her father, your grandfather, you said he he died from a stroke? Right. Early. About 53, 54 years old. So he would have, that would have been before, no, you said you met him when you were a baby. Did you? I was three or four years old. Yeah, so she was on her own in terms of her parents. Correct. Right. That's pretty incredible. Okay, so let's take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more on Spill the Matcha. Forty-eight hours of protection and no white marks. Gillette Clear Gel, because every day should be no sweat. This is your territory. This is fuel from morning runs. This is lunch during back-to-back meetings and dinner and time back for bedtime stories. This is an unquestionably healthy meal that arrives ready to eat. This is zero gluten, zero added sugar, and zero dirty dishes. This is Territory Foods. Visit territoryfoods.com slash yum slash T-I-K-V and use code 
RJ Tolson to get $25 off your first two orders. Food delivered, no assembly required. Check out our terms page for more details. Welcome back to Spill the Matcha. This is RJ Tolson. We're here with William L. Woods, retired physical therapist and business owner for over 40 years. Okay, so let's talk about some of the adversity you had to face to get to where you eventually went. And looking back on how you feel about it all now and what lessons can people learn from what you faced? I think that uh, many of the things that happened to me are experiences that you just learn from and you don't uh, let them deter you. Uh, for example, when I was at the University of Pennsylvania, I was the only black student in the class. And uh, when we were graduating, uh, there were only eight of us, and I was applying for commission in the U.S. Public Health Service, and I was one of the better students in the class. There was only eight, as I said, and uh, Jane Carlson, who was the assistant director of the school, uh, gave <clears throat> a reference for a commission for Al Glass, who was the lowest person in our class and happened to be Jewish, uh, gave him a recommendation to U.S. Public Health Service and didn't, wouldn't give me one. Uh, that's just way back in the beginning, but uh, <clears throat> when I applied for the directorship of the rehab center, which I subsequently was hired for uh, after one of the board members said, if I, whoever this person was applying, if he was the best qualified person, he should get the job. And then as a result of that, I was hired as the director of the program. But Well, let's say before you even go on, you know, when it, that's one of my favorite stories because you told, you told me that the job wasn't even for black people. Like they weren't expecting a black person to apply. Correct. So I'm assuming they didn't even put, you know, four whites only. Or maybe they even did and you did it anyway. But either way, you went up there and showed up and they didn't expect a black per person to show up, but you did. And when you got there, you had to fight. And luckily you had someone on the board because you couldn't, it couldn't just be up to you and your skill set, your experience, your personality. It had to be up to someone else to be able to dictate whether or not you were a right fit and not based on, you know, what should have been in business. Well, actually they had, I had come back for two interviews. From Pennsylvania. From Philadelphia. Uh, because not knowing at the time, of course, what was going on, but uh, my credentials evidently were so good and there was such a controversy within the board, so I found out later uh, that Harold Hyman, who was a dentist in town, who was on the board, uh, spoke out and said that if I was the best qualified person, that I should be hired. And after the second interview, I was subsequently hired. Well, let's keep in mind for going into 2020, let's hope that that's the way we're all treated <laughs> instead of going back to 1950, where that's still an issue, right? Well, unfortunately, <clears throat> that is not what's happening because of our leadership from our president, uh, I think that has impacted this whole issue of race. And therefore, uh, many of the things that I've went through, I think are still, I know, never, because I'm very, still very active in the uh, NAACP and I established a scholarship to 
my wife's in my wife's name and my name uh, to benefit people of all races, and we have candidates uh, who apply, and it's mixed as to the results of those who get the scholarship, and it can be anywhere from a thousand dollars to uh, five hundred dollars. But we've given over the last eight years, we've given several. Uh, at least three scholarships each year, which amount to over uh, $1,500 to $2,500. And luckily, like I said, hopefully, you know, even I've even even I compared, you know, and compared to what you had to face, have Sally had to experience forms of racism throughout my entire life. But, you know, compared to what you had to go through, and I love that story because I think it was very, how you were able to go through, push through, and show that you're you were worth it which the fact that you even had to do that in a sense and it wasn't just about your quality as a candidate but it was about your race is ridiculous but that's the way it was at the time and you still won you still did it and i think i succeeded in spite of not because of but in yes. spite of the racism yes and so what you know as you were in you you gained the the you gained you got the position as director of physical therapy, as a black person at the time, right? In an all, basically, what well, it was all white town at this point? Well, yes. Majority white? Yeah. 56,000 population at that time. It was a majority, I mean, there was maybe 1,500 that many blacks in the community at that time. Mm -hmm. And what happened afterwards, though, you still had to face more adversity as well, too. Well, there were things, you know, that happened during the operation of the program that people, uh, were, didn't realize in many situations that I was the, that the director was black until they showed up. And then the reaction many times was obvious that they were overcome by the, by the fact of seeing me and not recognizing me as the director. They would go to the Caucasian person working in the office or in the front, assuming that I could be standing there and they would go to the other person my assistants, uh, the secretary, uh, any of the aides, instead of coming to me or assuming that I was the director, and they, oh, you're the director? Oh, wow, I didn't know that. That's crazy. And then there was also, you mentioned the time where you were trying, you had to come up here for the job in itself, right? When you had to move here. Oh, yes. When we first moved here, <clears throat> I. When I first took the job in Meriden, I lived at the YMCA for three months because uh, we couldn't find housing that I thought was desirable and that the Caucasian would get as they're coming to the town as the director of a program, a community program. So I held off uh, until I could find a home. Uh, and actually, <clears throat> the... Uh, minister at the First Methodist Church in Meriden where we attended and I attended. When we came to Meriden, uh, I lived at the YMCA for three months because I couldn't find housing that was, in my opinion, uh, same quality that a Caucasian would have gotten coming here to start a community program. I refused to accept lesser than uh, in housing there, uh, the minister of the First Methodist Church, which I attended, gave a sermon on uh, 
racism and use my experience in trying to find housing as an example of the problem. As a result of that, the Lutheran Church, Augustana Lutheran Church, had a parsonage which was available because they didn't have a minister. And they offered the parsonage uh, for us to live in temporarily until we found a place. So we did move in March uh, into the parsonage and then subsequently, after about six months, uh, found a home that we actually bought and moved into in a new neighborhood. That's just one of the experiences. Maybe even, and then, and then follow up with even after you moved into the neighborhood, you had kids. You had more. You already had kids, but you had you had two, three kids. And three kids. You had three kids at the time, and then we. No. Go ahead. We had three, two kids. Mark was born in Philadelphia, and then we came up here. He was the third child, and then after we moved into the neighborhood, we had problems with the neighbors. Uh, the neighbor next door would call his children over whenever we let our kids go out in the yard and play. And he, so I finally went to him and said, I need for you to explain to me why you think your kids are better than mine and uh, what you're telling, because I, I don't know what to tell my children. So tell me what you tell your children so that we can re remedy this situation. And that corrected that. So for anyone who has ever met me <clears throat> and, and knows how blunt I am, now you know where I get it from <laughs> and why, why it's a good thing. But go ahead. And then <clears throat> the neighbor in the backyard adjacent to a house we were in <clears throat> kept pulling, taking the balls. Anytime a ball would go over into the, his yard, he would kept it, kept the ball. So I went over to his door, knocked on the door, and uh, asked him for the ball one of the time that he refused to give me the ball and I thought he made an attempt to hit me so I struck him and hit him and uh, my neighbor was a policeman a very dear friend of mine so he came over and uh, told me what he saw what happened and he was going that I was going to be arrested which I was and then it was settled out of court but that's the kind of experience that I had well, the, was that in the 60s or the 70s Oh, that was, I uh, came here in 60, 57, so the kids, that's in the 60s, early 60s. And you could have, you could have been arrested and a lot worse could have happened to you during that time correct, period. Correct, correct. But uh, there was a, a more liberal hierarchy in the police department. And then my neighbor being a policeman, I guess, didn't hurt that he helped the situation yeah well i think that's i mean just that's four or five issues that i, I hope that people don't have to face <clears throat> as much today at least at least in you know the u.s to a certain degree but i know that's not necessarily true so i hate saying that it isn't but you know i think what's great what you can really learn from those situations you know and you can speak more to this is is you know as you face these you didn't let these challenges uh, stop you from continuing No, you shouldn't be deterred by these experiences because it's uh, ascending to success. That's what I would call it, and that you have to be strong and be forceful and be determined to uh, overcome these obstacles and to prove that you can do the job in spite of these uh, 
uncalled for uh, racist acts. And I think that uh, due diligence is, is, the, is the clue, clue and success in determination and be a better than. That's the other thing. You have to be better than the average person as a minority, as a black person. And you have to work harder. And that's something that uh, I can't overstress, that you have to be honest, have integrity, and be determined to prove that you can do the job and do it as well, if not better, and expect to do that. What, what did you, what do you, how do you feel got you through all of that time period? Like before you had kids, before you can say, oh, it's my kids or <clears throat> it's my wife, what, what do you feel got you through? Like what feeling, what thought, whatever, what mantra, you know, what mantra did you have? What was it that got you through? Oh, I think the, the thing years? that uh, got me through was uh, the determination to succeed and do better and re recognizing the fact that you can't do what the average person or as a physical therapist, you have to be better than. And I used to go to conferences all the time and various uh, educational uh, programs to improve my skills and uh, become better than the average physical therapist, which I was and subsequently became as a result of that and determination to uh, succeed and, and get, uh, overcome these obstacles. And then once you do that, you gain respect and uh, it, it becomes a little easier because you're, you've proven yourself, but that takes time. You have to be patient and, hard and be willing to work hard. I mean, I even saw the remnants of, of your success, but also of your compassion, your quality of work when I was a kid and I would come visit you because even in what the early 2000s before you retired, you, and even after you retired for, for quite a few years, I'd say up until probably even maybe the last few years, people used to, you, you couldn't go anywhere in this area and not be recognized. Like every time we went to the grocery store, there was somebody new who you would tell me about that would recognize you and say, thank you so much for helping my mother. Thank you so much for helping me. Thank you, you know, my father, my cousin, right. my uncle, no, whatever it was. That's correct. We used to, I used to go into, uh, I used, at the end of my last 10 years, I used to say I've gone through three generations because uh, quite often someone would come up to me and say, oh, you treated my grandfather or my grandmother, and uh, or they'd come in as a patient and say, oh, I came because my grandfather or my grandmother or suggested I come to you. And this, that's the kind of thing that happens with success and uh, developing a reputation, a positive reputation. Well, like I said, I think there's, you have a lot of great stories. I know you have m way more you could tell. We could sit here for for weeks Correct, yes. <laughs> and talk about all these stories, but um, it's been a great ride. Well, we'll be right back again after this quick break on Spill the Mantra. Renting a car has never been better because renting through Turo equals no more shuttle rides, waiting in line, or boring cars. Get the car you've always wanted. Download the app today. Welcome back to Spill the Macho. I'm RJ Tolson. 
Before we wrap up, we need to hit our random curious question of the day. Knowledge truly is power, something I think we can both relate to, and the more of it you have, the more resources you have to apply whatever you're trying to do in life. And I think you're probably one of the people that taught me that, specifically. Uh, the more you have to do? I said the more knowledge, the more power, the more you can do. So, this episode's question is, why is the presidential limousine made by Cadillac? I would think because Cadillac at one time and still is one of the premier automakers in the, in the world. And Cadillac uh, represents excellence. You think Cadillac is still one of the premier makers in the world? Yes. I only say that, I only ask that because I'm just thinking about how many Cadillacs I often see, you know, in Los Angeles specifically, but I, it, it may be different here. But I think I see more Mercedes, not that, not that their grade has lowered, but based on the fact that you didn't really like the Cadillac CTS, which is the model from the last, I think, 15 years you didn't really like, because you had an Eldorado, and uh, before that you had what? You had an Eldorado before that too. I had, an, I had an Eldorado every year. I mean, one, every, all the Cadillacs I had were Eldorados. You got, when, did you, when did you get your first Cadillac? I don't know. The last one I had was O2, so I had probably had one for 20 years before. I remember that. So that was okay, uh, and then you had you bought many other different cars before that. Eighty two would be the year probably. Twenty years back would be eighty two. Well, the reason I would think it's not, I, I'm surprised that it's Cadillac. I should say, is because I just don't see a lot of them often. But I guess I've never well, noticed but it. I'm, you're talking about historically. Yeah. And historically, that's true. It's an American-made car. Yeah. And it's was the top. It. I don't know how it's rated now, but it's one of the top cars, and not the top. At that time, it was the top car. Yeah, it was Lincoln, right, and Cadillac. Right. Lincoln and Cadillac were the two major luxury cars in the in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, let me read the answer. So, you know, it look it only looks like a Cadillac, okay? <laughs> it only looks like a Cadillac, but it's not made by Cadillac. The vehicle is built by a security firm that contracts for the job and General Motors, in this case, handles publicity and any beneficial returns for martyrs. Uh, most details of the vehicle remain secret and the press is only allowed a glimpse of the features that are either obvious or easily predictable. When it gets scrapped, it will be destroyed in order to keep its security features confidential. Plus, the Secret Service will get to test its defenses to destruction. Meaning they get to blow it up with whatever they want, do whatever. The contractor might be slightly nervous at that point. But basically, the thickness of the door, and you can compare that to Cadillac. The insignia on it may look or compare to Cadillac. Um, but the caddies cannot be modified to make doors like that. You know, they can't be modified to do any of that stuff. The cabin is totally different. Uh, but the bodywork sits on a Chev Kodiak chassis. Uh which the Cadillac components mentioned below are items such as lights, instrumentation, switches, mirrors, and some interior fittings. So long story short, it sounds like they take a Cadillac or they use certain portions of a Cadillac and then basically mod it, you know, modify it from there. So it may not, it may or may not be, may have, may or not have been beforehand, like with JFK, for example, if they were using the Cadillac design then, that may have been because more so of the prestige of Cadillac and being an American car because 
you know, you think about the security they had on that car, and they didn't have much, but, as we know. Well, the point is that it was a convertible. Yes, and it was so, a Cadillac convertible. So, so he was more vulnerable. I don't think they're using convertibles anymore no, as they, a result of that. No, I hope so not. That's well, what has changed. Yes. So, I mean, I think your, your, your um, note regarding why it may be Cadillac may have been true about the past. And I right. think now it's just morphed into, with technology, using the basis of a Cadillac or something similar and then right. evolving. I'm not sure, So because the reason I asked that too is I'm not so sure now that it's based on the prestige of Cadillac because I just don't know how popular Cadillac is anymore, which is too bad as you know an American-made car. But... With Tesla as also an American-made car, I'm happy to see cars like that still in existence. GM making a comeback after the huge economy dip and a couple of other um, cars. I'm sure I don't see Lincolns rarely ever anymore. I mean, I see beat up old, you know, Lincolns periodically here and there, but I don't see them very often. I don't even do, I guess they do make new Lincolns for Oh, I see them. For drivers. I see them quite often. Yeah. More so recently in the past couple of years. Uh, but they're not as popular as other cars, no question. Yeah. All right, well, thank you for being on this episode of Spill the Matcha. My pleasure. I know this is your first podcast that you've ever listened to. Yes. <laughs> and it's also been on. Um, normally I say, where can everyone find you? But I'm not so sure I want random people finding my grandfather in <laughs> retirement, you know, coming to his house or whatever that would be. So we'll leave it at that for now. What do you think of the the podcast world so far. Very impressive. Interesting experience. Very much so. I mean, before you'd have radio, I mean, I don't even know what you'd imagine back in the 50s and 60s, but what went on behind the whole radio scene. Well, you wouldn't, you couldn't conceive of it. You know, it's just, uh, so it's such a dramatic change, all these new electronic uh, innovations have made it so uh, seemingly simplistic, but yet so complicated. Well, what are your two new favorite pieces of technology right now? You mentioned them today, earlier today. Oh, my phone. Well, there's that, but you, what have you been using to listen to music? Oh, the Alexa. And what did you say? And what's the, where do you get the music from? Oh, Spotify. There, <laughs> uh, I love that. Okay, well, thanks again for being on, and I, you know, I hope people will take a listen to the 91 years of knowledge and, and not expertise necessarily, but expertise as well as just experience that you've gained and the lessons that can be learned from it. Thank you. I hope so. Thanks for listening to Spill the Matcha with me, RJ Tolson. Find me on Instagram and Twitter at RJ Tolson. Spill the Matcha is a Capitore Studios original podcast. The show is executive produced by RJ Tolson and produced by Kevin E. Wood. Download the Bursa app today and check out all of the other inspiring and informative original shows and podcasts.